Let's continue our worship together by turning in our Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2, we'll be looking at verses 5 through 11 this morning. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. This is one of the most majestic passages in all the scriptures. So I'd like us to read the entire thing before beginning the sermon today. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As we've made our way through the book of Philippians up to this very point, I've recently found myself in somewhat of a dilemma, a conundrum, one that you might be able to help with. Consider it with me for a moment. The text leading up to this very point in verse 5 isn't all that controversial. It makes a lot of sense. Paul's been calling on the church in Philippi and us, by extension, to display allegiance to the gospel by uniting around its advance, uniting around the advance of the gospel. That makes total sense to me. Like if you're going to be displaying your allegiance to Christ, of course, you're going to partner together with other people and see the gospel go forward. That, That part's not a problem for me. Uh, He even, in verses 27 to 30, makes this about uniting around the advance of the gospel despite opposition. I totally get that the gospel would be opposed. When you say that Jesus is ruler and rescuer and you're not, or your favorite God is not, I could see where there'd be conflict and we're going to have to have a fight on our hands. Where things start to get interesting for me are verses 1 through 4, chapter 2. I mean, there, Paul, instead of focusing on uniting around gospel advance, despite opposition, now begins to focus on the uniting, (laughs) the, uh, the internal part, not the external. And even the internal part, in and of itself, makes sense to me. Like, I totally get that if we're going to do something so monumental, something so huge, we're going to do it together. But it's the the method, it's the means by which he actually would call on us to achieve this unity, this oneness, that is so confusing to me. 
he says it there in verses 3 and 4, that essentially oneness in a church will come from us not pursuing our own agenda, doing things for our own glory, but rather considering others to be more important than ourselves. Not looking out for our own interest only, but looking out for the interest of others. It kind of just has me wondering, how in the world are we supposed to operate selflessly, humbly with one another, when this is literally the way we're wired? It's called the survival instinct, self-preservation. It's baked into you, whether you want it to be or not. The truth is, our normal way of thinking is in light of whatever is best for self. It's a survival mechanism. It is something that will happen within you subconsciously. You will always natively go for whatever is best for you. Whatever would lead to your preservation, whatever would lead to your well-being. When you experience pain, what happens? You pull away. When you experience fear, what happens? You naturally want to flee. It's a survival instinct. It happens in any created organism that is actually alive. Some scientists have tried to argue that self-preservation is almost a universal hallmark of life. And yet what the text says, here's where the problem comes in, folks. Oh, by the way, don't preserve yourself. If we're going to be united as a church, if we're going to be united as the people of God, what we have to be able to do is to somehow check the self-preservation instinct. Well, that's easy. About as easy as trying to hold a bucket of water underneath a pool. You ever tried it? <laughs> Maybe it's just something boys do. But you try to push that thing under there, and it just keeps trying to get back up. I mean, you've got to be a man's man to actually be able just to get a cup of water underneath a pool. And yet we have that that tendency that is erupting. We want to like release the pressure. We're naturally compelled to, to do that which seems impossible, to act not only in our own best interest, but for that which is good for others. Uh, this is seen, this tendency is seen every time we pull into a parking lot. Very few times, if any, have I seen someone troll around for the worst space in the lot. This instinct is seen every time we go to a salad bar. Normally, when I see someone pecking around a salad bowl, they're not looking for the nasty shriveled tomato. They're looking for the best one. This tendency is seen any time you take a photograph of family or friends. Because as soon as the picture's taken, what you want to do is take a look at it, and if you don't look good, it has to be retaken. Who cares about everyone else? I'm just trying to give you examples of the fact that this self-preserving tendency is in operation all the time. You don't even recognize it. I'm sure you wore what you wore today. Not with the thought, you know, this looks horrible. I, I just really want to look bad today. People debate. They hold up stuff. Hey, what do you think would look best? What would make me look best? 
So given our natural bent to be self-centered, it has always been difficult, if not impossible, to live Christ-directed. I mean, like it, this point of verses 1 to 4 just kind of has you begging the question, well, on, what does this look like? <laughs> I mean, really, how are we actually going to do this thing? And that's why I'm glad that Paul not only gives us so far a motive for this and a mission of what this unity looks like and a method, but he gives us a model gives us a model. I don't know about you, but I'm a visual learner. I prefer to be able to see things. I I like the instructions, but I love a picture. What we have in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, contrary to popular belief, is actually a picture of what selflessness should look like in a church. Verses 5 through 11 are not a Christological dilemma to be solved, they are a practical example to be emulated. In my library, one of my commentaries on the book of Philippians is 650 pages long. And this particular passage, listen to this, takes up 100 of the 650 pages. Why? Because most people approach this text in isolation from the context of selfless living. They've tried to use it to answer questions that would be asked about Jesus centuries later, and answers indeed can be found. But we're not being true to the text if we just make this an isolated chapter on Christology. What we have here is a practical example of the mindset that Paul is calling for us to live out amongst ourselves, plural, as a church. And so to help us understand this, I think it'd be good if we would approach this text noting two perspectives, two perspectives for taking in and living out the mind of Christ. Two perspectives here in this text for taking in and living out the the mind of Christ. You cannot live out what you have not taken in. So We'll look at it from from two angles, two perspectives. The first one is what I'll call the top-down. The Uh, the, top-down. The verses 6, 7, and 8 in particular give us the top-down movement. And this is very instructive for us. Look at this picture of Jesus Christ. Paul says in verse 5, have this mindset, the one that I just called you to live out, this, this selflessness, this humility, this service for others. I want you to have this mindset in the same way that Christ Jesus has this mindset. And now here's the way that Jesus thought. This is the way that his mind worked, beginning at verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, I think it's maybe best if we follow the progression of these few verses with somewhat of an analogy. I want to invite you to a a little um, illustration, within an illustration. Why don't you imagine a building for a moment? Uh, a pretty tall building. Let's think of uh, the Burj Khalifa in Abu Dhabi. No, excuse me. UAE, where is it? 
somewhere in the Middle East. Huh? Dubai. Thank you, world travelers. Everybody's seen it. The huge building. The thing is about half a mile tall. It's massive. So in this imaginary illustration, we're going to step into an elevator for a moment and ride up to the top. I want you to see things from the very top. I, I, want, you to, I want you to get the penthouse view, if you will, of, of where Christ was originally thinking, like the way that he viewed things in eternity past. This perspective is offered for us right at the beginning. What did it look like from that far up? Well, very simply, it says, he was in the form of God, and he did, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. The word form there of God is the Greek word morphe. You think of the word metamorphosis. <laughs> uh, it actually conveys not just like the shape or outline of something. That's the way we normally think of the word form. Someone has a good form. They're well-shaped. This is not uh, an American kind of word here. This is something deeper. Uh, it is something more uh, substantial. Uh, form in the scriptures, especially when you look at how this word is used in the Greek version of the Old Testament, actually conveys that of an essential attribute of something. An essential attribute of something. Not every essential attribute of something, but an essential attribute of something. I could say, for example, that a triangle has three sides. Well, that doesn't exhaust the definition of a triangle for those of you who are mathematical geniuses. But you at least know that part. Triangles do have three sides. Three sides is an essential expression of a triangle. In, in this case, what it's saying is that Jesus existed in the essential expression of God. He had the attributes of God that would readily identify him as such. It's not as strong a word as somebody would want it to be in like a, uh, a theology book. But again, Paul's not writing a theology book. He's trying to give an example. And this particular word, he's going to put in poetic parallelism with form of a slave a little later. But for now, I want you to get the picture. <laughs> the NIV actually gets this very right. It conveys the idea best, as idea for idea translations normally do. It says it this way, being in the very nature of God. Being in the very nature of God. Brothers and sisters, it doesn't get any more significant than this. If you want to talk about a top-level view on things, you're talking about someone who has the perspective of God, someone who is indeed God, someone who possesses his very nature. Jesus was at the top of the ladder, if you will. And what I want you to notice is his mindset, even from the top, even in the penthouse, this is the way that he's thinking. Existing in the form of God, it says this, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now I realize that there are so many words in this particular passage that could be just theological landmines for us. Instead of taking you down all the avenues of what it could say and what it doesn't say, let me just focus on what it does say. What does it mean? that 
This, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Well, your popular options would be something like this. Either he didn't have it, and he could have grabbed at it, or that he didn't want to, and this is the better way to think of it, he already had it and therefore didn't need to grab at it. <laughs> he didn't think of it as something that needed to be grasped or clung to. What's fascinating about this particular phrase is it, it's an idiom, it's a, it's a figure of speech that was popular in the first century world that actually denoted that of a windfall or good fortune. And normally when you experience something that's amazing, when you have something that you deem very precious, what do you do? You hold on to it and leverage it and exploit it for your advantage. Basically, the text is saying here, he had equality with God, but he did not, and this is as plain as I can say it, he did not exploit it. He did not cling to it for his own advantage. I think we know what it's like to use that which we have for personal advantage, for personal advancement. Christ did not have that mindset about his full equality with God. If form of God left any questions in your mind about the, who Christ is or what he's like, let the parallel thought equal with God answer any questions. Fully equal with God, but he was not going to cling to that in such a way so as to exploit his equality with God. This is, even from the very top of the building, this is already the way that God himself thought. And so how does he process these advantages? If he doesn't exploit his equality with God the Father for personal advantage, what does he do then? How is he an example for us? How does the one who exists in the very nature of God think? Well, we need to get back on the elevator. And we need to take it down, and we're going to hit G. We're, we're going ground floor here. Because the mindset doesn't stay up from above, but there, there's something that's added to it. There's, in addition to this full sovereignty, there is a servile humanity that he takes on to himself. Look at verse 7. But, instead of exploiting God, the, this equality with God for his own advantage, verse 7 says, but he emptied himself. He emptied himself. The natural question here is, emptied himself of what? <laughs> of what did he empty himself? Well, I want you to know, friends, that the text doesn't say that he emptied himself of anything. It doesn't say that he emptied himself of divine attributes. It doesn't say that he emptied himself of being God. It just says that he emptied himself. Uh, the phrase, emptied himself, just means, basically, he made self of none effect. He made himself, as the King James says it, of no reputation. He wasn't making a big deal out of self. Kind of sounds like what you heard earlier back in verses 3 and 4, not? But if, if that's too vague for you, if, if you don't get like, all right, just I need a little more clarity on what he's doing here. Well, you have two participles that follow this main verb, emptied himself, that give it some explanation, that fill it out. So he emptied himself how? By taking on the form of a servant by being made in the likeness of men. So, Jesus empties himself, actually not by subtraction, but by addition. <laughs> he empties himself not by subtraction, but by addition. He, he takes something onto himself that he never had before, and that is human nature. Human nature. 
Now, if that confuses you, I want you just to imagine with me one of these amazingly nice cars that just happen to be speeding around this area so often. It's kind of a funny thing when I go to the movies or even to uh, the grocery store and just see the cars that are lined up. (laughs) There's some beautiful ones. I will not make my preference known here, but in these new, shiny, powerful vehicles, I I want you to imagine with me that I was actually going to buy one of those, and I I go to the dealership, and they don't check my... (laughs) my background, I just assumed that I could actually buy one of these, and they let me do a test drive. And so instead of doing just the normal test drive, like on a road, I actually pull off at the first little side road I can and decide to see how this thing handles the mud. Now, to the dismay of the dealer, I'm sure, and to my delight, this would be a pretty unique experience because now I get to take this brand shiny new vehicle And I am going to do something to it. I am going to add something to it that it has never seen. And that is a layer of mud. Showing that, you know what, this thing's been fully tested. Now, you would look at that and say, well, what did you do to that car? It's not the same car. It is the same car. It's just something has been added to it that humbled it. It, it put it in a different status, in a different light than what it had before. In a very small way, Jesus emptied himself, not by becoming something different. He was still God. He was still equal. But he added something. He took on human nature. And not just any human nature. The text actually says he took on the form of a servant. Remember, the form is, is that which uh, an essential attribute of something. He took on the essential attribute of slavery. Servant is too weak a word. It's the Greek word doulos. I mean, Jesus actually became a slave. Now, that may not mean much for you, but in a first century culture in which honor and shame were everything, this is unthinkable. I mean, him becoming human is one thing, but taking on the form of a slave, that's something totally different. This is the bottom of the totem pole, the bottom of the pecking order. This is qualitatively what he stepped into. But actually, not just qualitatively, but actually he took on the likeness of man, of humanity, anthropos. He entered humankind. And the reason why Paul is going to emphasize likeness is because he wants you to get the appearance. I mean, think about it. If you had the option, as God Almighty, of coming down into earth, how would you make yourself look? How would you make yourself look? I imagine that we would do some modification on certain body parts. Guys may want bigger biceps. They may want a more chiseled jawline. They may want to come across as like somebody impressive and strong. And yet what does Jesus come as? Well, he just comes in the likeness of plain old man. The text we read earlier in Isaiah 53 made it clear that this is not just any man. It says in specific that He grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. You ever seen one of those? You ever seen a root that's been upturned? There is nothing pretty about that. It's not going on any artwork anytime soon. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
and as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Friends, don't fall for the artwork of the Middle Ages. There was no special halo around Jesus. He wasn't the most beautiful in the picture. He was just human. You wouldn't have recognized him in a lineup. He descended to that point. He, he wasn't concerned about his status. That's what Paul wants you to see. He's not trying to make much of himself. He actually entered into this particular state so as to be unrecognizable, so as to not draw attention to himself. I mean, this is amazing because in that particular day, people thought that greatness was defined as notoriety. Why do you think? Emperors wore crowns and carried staffs. I mean, why do you think they had exalted thrones? Because people were supposed to look at them and be able to tell by their outward display that they were something amazing. And what God Almighty does when he enters into humanity is actually does the opposite. So Justin, this is all pretty hypothetical. Get back to verses 3 and 4 for a second. What does this mean for you? Well, when Paul calls us to selfless status, this is the picture of what he has in mind. Even if we did have something to offer, and we don't as fallen, sinful human beings, but even if we did have something to offer, we wouldn't be trying to draw attention to it. We would actually, as much as possible, try to remain in obscurity. He's saying this is what selfless status looks like. This is what it means, or here's a picture of you actually pursuing service and considering others more important than yourself. It's happy to be a nobody. That's the way that Christ would think. That's the way that Christ would pursue ministry. But you know, that's actually not the full picture because we're only on the ground level. Step back on the elevator for a moment and let's actually hit the basement. Because Jesus doesn't just exist in the form of a slave taking on humanity, but the text goes on to add that he would go down even further. And that is seen in verse 7. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And now notice... He's established that, verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, that means literally he lowered himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He humbled himself. So even though he had already come down and entered into humanity as a human being, this is the point, like people like me and you as entering our status now, to make it more practical, he humbled himself. He made himself low. He made himself low. That's what humble means. It means to make yourself low. Uh, the opposite of this is what normally takes place, the self-preservation instinct. You know, <laughs> I'm thinking of some of the teachers in the room, and when they tell their, their kids in the class, hey, line up for the playground. Line up for recess. I remember that. And it is, it is, it is a man's game. 
Because the kids will claw and scratch and do whatever it takes to be up in the front of the line. It's that self-preservation instinct. They want to enjoy the playground first. Humility would be to make oneself low. Humility is actually not to clamor for the front of the line but the back. It's to go straight to the back and say, you know what? This is, this is where I need to be. Let, let me serve them. To use our analogies from earlier, it would be actually patrolling around the parking lot saying, you know what, I think I'm going to take this one back here just in case anybody else needs to use these other spaces. It would actually be going through the saddle line, finding, finding the, the scrawny tomatoes and saying, you know what, I wouldn't want anybody else to have to eat these. I'll take care of these instead. Low, low. It says that he made himself low. He wasn't looking to fulfill his own desires. And again, we have a greater and clearer picture of what this humility looks like because there's another one of these participles that says, he humbled himself. How did he do that? By becoming obedient to the point of death. Friends, anytime you obey, you want to know like a concrete expression of humility is obeying someone. Obeying someone. You know why that's such a problem? Because what you're doing in obedience is you're submitting your will and your desires and your way to the will and desires of another. And by the way, the more costly their obedience, the more extravagant the humility. If you were to tell me after the service, hey, give me $5. Well, I, I could give you $5. And it's not actually going to hurt me that much. But if you say, give me $5,000, I'm going to be like, Pfft. Well, A, I don't have it. But B, if I did, why would I give it to you? It, see, you've got to think of extravagance. The, the greater the inconvenience to you, the greater the expression of humility. Jesus didn't just obey. It says that he obeyed to the point of death. $5,000, friends, pales in comparison to death. See, what was Jesus obeying? What was he obeying? Well, again, we go back to the passage we read in Isaiah 53. It was the will of the Lord. God had planned from eternity past that salvation would be accomplished in this way, and Jesus agrees to the plan. He obeys his Father in this way, all the way to the point of death itself. And not just any death but a humiliating death. It says, even death on a cross. Our friends, we have a problem. We have a problem in our, in our culture, and I, I have it too, not just we, you, but like we, us, <laughs> have a problem insofar as we cannot see and be shocked by anymore the cross. The cross, when we, we sing of it, when we talk about it, when we have it hanging on our walls or around our necks, like it doesn't seem as shocking and offensive as it was actually intended to be. When Paul says this, even death on a cross, like he was intending to shock them. He was tending to stun them. One pastor helped me with this. A little while back, he said, in the New Testament period, a, a cross was a grotesque object of torture, persecution, and state power over life. It was a public, humiliating death chair. 
An image of it hung lovingly and artistically in a space, I think, simply further distances us from the way the cross was understood and expressed in the New Testament. It helps exchange the shock of God's love in this way into something more akin to our grandmother's lace doily, an object of sentimental and nostalgic affection. While God is the object of our supreme affection, and we can speak and sing of the cross as shorthand for his loving sacrifice for us, the simple physical representation of it as a lovely piece of art can unhelpfully distance us from its offensiveness and therefore unintentionally rob us of a measure of understanding of God's extraordinary love for us. In this case, shock is better than mere familiar sentiment. And to this I would agree. You take the perspective of the day. Marcus Tullus Cicero, one of the greatest orators and statesmen of the time, a contemporary of both Jesus and Paul, he would say this, to bind a Roman citizen is a crime. To flog him is an abomination. To slay him is almost an act of murder. To crucify him is what? There is no fitting word that can possibly describe so horrible a deed. Elsewhere, Cicero would write, the very word cross should be far removed not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. And by the way, Paul says, think this way. Willingly take this kind of pain and shame on, and now you've got a good idea of what's being called for in our ministry to one another in the local church. Pain, shame. It might hurt, and you might not be popular. There's your takeaway. So how do we know that we're doing it right? Well, does it ever cost us? Does it ever shame us? Does it ever hurt our pride to do such a thing? Friends, if you want a practical, just evaluative experience of your own ministry and my own ministry in this regard, just go home, look up the church covenant, which is a summary of the ethical commands in the Bible that we should display toward one another, and then just ask yourself, how am I doing? How am I doing? In what way is, am I hurting <laughs> and am I being humbled in doing these things? Look, you could go through that thing and you could underline the stuff that comes naturally to you, but there will be some things that you should probably circle that do not come naturally to you because you are all interested in you. <laughs> the things that you would do on that list because, you know what, I like the way that people think of me when I do these things versus the things that you would do on that list and you say, hey, nobody would ever know if I did that. The things on the list that would be natural to your personality and your style and the things that would be contrary to it. And you'd be like, man, that, that's kind of painful for me to do that. What the text is saying is Jesus, actually, if we're going to think his way, he just willingly embraces pain and shame in obedience. Now, we don't just do that which is painful and shameful <laughs> because we want to. We do that which obeys. We do that which God has told us to do. But sometimes we need to recognize it just hurts. Sometimes we need to recognize that, you know what, no one's going to pat us on the back over this. And so I'd encourage that exercise. Here's the instruction for us. Here's the picture. We've got Jesus going from the penthouse down to the ground level, all the way down to the basement. And he's saying, all right, that's the mindset. And here's the question for us practically. Here's how we can evaluate if this is going well for us. In your relationships and in your ministry here at this church, do you find yourself more climbing up the ladder 
or climbing down it? Are you looking for, for prominence and pleasure in this place, or are you looking for, for service, for obscurity? Paul says this is the picture of success in a church. Look at your Lord. This is the way he operates. This is the way you operate. This is the way I should operate. There's the top-down mentality. That's instructive for us. But there's something here that's not just instructive, but inspirational. Inspirational. And that's this next perspective. And that is the bottom-up mentality. There's a top-down for sure where we just where we descend, but there's something unique that most people overlook in verses 9 through 11 that is actually a bottom-up perspective that is not typically afforded to this text. And this is not merely instructive. This is inspirational. I want you to note how God will respond to Jesus living out this type of mindset. Here's how the Father responds to the Son. Look at verse 9. Therefore, in light of the fact that Jesus thought this way and acted this way, God, in this case the Father, has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. <laughs> Look, what does God think of such humility? What does the Father think? I know that the Roman government would say that the best thing you could possibly do, true greatness, is in you like touting yourself in you, like making your name known, in making yourself bigger and impressive. What does God think? God thinks this is amazing. God rewards this type of mindset in Christ by doing what? By exalting him again back to the highest position. By making his name known and great. By positing him forward as the Lord of the universe. It's amazing. He says... He's highly exalted him. He's super exalted him is another way that you could say that. He's bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So Jesus took on this anonymous existence. And now God gives him a name that would be above every name. For you Bible scholars in the room, the good question to ask is, well, what's that name? What's the name? Is it Jesus? Well, he kind of already had the name Jesus, did he not? He was given that at his birth. What name is he talking about here? He's talking about the name Yahweh. Translated in our New Testaments in English as Lord. Lord. Jesus would be known as the Lord. He would be known as God himself. I mean, like in the Old Testament, you remember, he says, hey, children of Israel, you need to know my special name is Yahweh. Well, that particular little, that word, those, those four letters in Hebrew would be translated in Greek as the word kurios, which is that which is here. And of course, Jesus was already the Lord. He was already Yahweh before he ever died and rose again and ascended. But here's the deal. He wasn't known as such. The confession that Jesus Christ is Lord wasn't prominent until God rose him from the dead and he ascended into heaven on high. That was the way that God would pronounce to the world, this indeed was me. This is Lord. This is Yahweh. This is Kurios. 
and at his name and at his title, there will come a day, in verse 10, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is whom? Lord, to the glory of God the Father. That particular phrase there in verses 10 and 11 You could just write out to the side of your Bible, Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45. In Isaiah 45, we actually have a prophecy of the way things will go down at the very end of time. And basically, it works like this. It says in Isaiah 45 that there will come a moment and a point in time where everyone will be forced into the presence of God Almighty and he will acknowledge himself to be the supreme ruler of the universe and everyone will confess that Yahweh is indeed Lord. Every knee will bow, showing submission. Every tongue will confess. And interestingly here, Isaiah 45 is ascribed to none other than Jesus Christ himself. That is the Lord. Why? in response to this climactic display of humility. God values this. He values this humility. I mean, to the degree that everyone one day will be forced to acknowledge his lordship. Does this mean that everyone at the end will be fully and finally saved? (laughs) No. (laughs) Uh, This is called uh, subjugation, not voluntary submission. I mean, the general practice in the ancient Near East was that when one king would conquer another king, a little symbolic ceremony would take place, and that is the conquering king would place his foot on the neck of the king that had lost. It showed his superiority. I don't think that that king is saying, oh, please, let me lay down on my back and let you put my, I mean, your foot on my neck. What he's saying is, I concede. I'm tapping out. I am expressing. It's like the game, you know, where we say, Uncle, (laughs) what they're going to say one day is, Lord, you are Lord. You are indeed who you said you were. And God will force this to happen. Everyone will recognize one day his greatness. And this is supposed to be, get it back to you for a second. This is actually supposed to be instructive and inspirational for us. You say, Justin, what does the exaltation of Jesus have to do with me and humility and selfless service in Christ? Great question. Because it shows what God ultimately values. It shows what he values. I know that you would think that this basically suicide mission of trying to serve other people and not get any recognition for it is totally worthless. And what the text is actually telling you is that no, this, could be, this is the best. This is the highest. This is true greatness as exemplified by our Lord Jesus Christ himself. Do you remember that uh, little argument in Matthew chapter 20? I was talking to a guy about it this week. It's fascinating. Jesus has already predicted that he's going to suffer and die on the cross and that his disciples would have to suffer and die with him. But you, you know what they start talking about? Uh, James and John in particular. Like Jesus had just gotten out of his mouth that you're going to die, that you're going to have to take up a cross and follow me. And you know what they start doing? They start arguing with one another about none other than who's the greatest. They start arguing about who the greatest is. And do you remember what Jesus said to them? He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercised authority over them, and it shall not be so among you. 
But whoever would be great among you must be your slave. And whoever would be first among you must be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus says this is true greatness. When you're not popular, when you endure pain to see others prosper, this is what it means to be great in the eyes of God. He would illustrate this shortly thereafter. It would be just the few hours before he would be turned over to uh, the authorities. And they were up there in that upper room, and he's going to deliver this solemn discourse. And it's funny because the normal routine of the day would be that when you step in from the street outside, that someone, the slave, the house slave, would actually bind a towel around their waist and wash the feet of the individuals that were there. Now, in this particular case, they have no slave because they're in a rented room. (laughs) So there's no household slave to be there. So you know what the guys do? They just come in off the street with their dirty feet, covered in dust and excrement and everything else, and they just decide to go ahead and sit down and get ready for the meal. But in the meantime, Jesus has disappeared. And as you continue to read the passage in John, we find that he himself has donned the slave's towel. He has found a bowl of water. And before the meal ever begins, he actually gets on his knees and wipes the dirt and mud and muck and feces off of their feet to prepare them for the meal that they're about to partake. And then he says to them, As I have done to you, so you also do to one another. That is greatness. Not the king's crown, but the slave's towel. This is the ambition. This is the mindset that is being modeled for us here. You should see this as true excellence. Like, this is the standard that we're pursuing after in our church. And yet too often we're like James and John. Robert Raines wrote a poem under that name. He says, I am like James and John. Lord, I size up other people in terms of what they can do for me, how they can further my program, feed my ego, satisfy my needs, give me strategic advantage. I exploit people ostensibly for your sake, but really for my own sake. Lord, I turn to you to get the inside track and obtain special favors. Your direction for my schemes, your power for my projects, your sanction for my ambitions, your blank checks for whatever I want. I am like James and John. Is it just me? To us all, The text says, be like Jesus. Be like Jesus. I was really sad this year to find out that um, the Olympics have been postponed. I understand why they had to be. But for me, that is uh, the highlight of every couple years, whether it be the winter or the summer Olympics. There's never a time in my life that I will watch curling outside of the Olympics. (laughs) 
in a foot race, even that, I'm not watching it unless it's the Olympics. It's a special time. I don't know why that we, we all just get sucked in. To me, the Olympics represent the, op- the opposite of an election year. Like, I hate election years. They're just disgusting to me. But I voted, don't worry, I do it. <laughs> but just the, the, the wrangling, the back and forth. But when it's an Olympic year, oh, those are awesome because now like everybody's on the same page for something. Indeed, the something that we're on the same page about really isn't that eternally significant. But people watch, they stay up late, and they want to see their country advance. And what's so interesting to me about the Olympics in particular is that they're not only entertaining, but they are instructive and they are inspirational. I mean, I cry when I hear the Star Spangled Banner playing and one of the Americans has actually won a gold medal. It's like, there's something nice about it. There's something great. And it's, it's, it's the best type of programming to me. If I have to watch something, I want it to be something that will instruct me in excellence, in this case, in a particular sport. Like, oh, look at that perfect form. <laughs> did, did you see, like, how he did that? I mean, like, there's just... These climactic displays of excellence, I love that, the instructive. There's something inspirational. When I watch the Olympics, if I could curl, I would. (laughs) I hate running, but I'm like, let's go race. (laughs) I mean, I see what's going on there, and I'm like, oh, this is so amazing. This This is the best. This is the highest level. It's one of those rare times where inspiration and instruction come together in one. And that's exactly what we have in this text, friends. If you're wondering, how do I use Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11? Well, you don't use it to debate theology. There is no to-do list for you here and say, here's seven steps to live like Jesus this week. He's already given that in verses 3 and 4. You use it as general inspiration and instruction. You take in the view. You take in the view. You let it affect you. Look at it. Look at it from the top down. I mean, see the condescension of our Lord and ask yourself, is this just the general movement of my life and my relationships with other believers here? Am I clamoring for the highest and the best Or am I actually clawing to get down into the painful and sometimes shameful needs of others and just trying to serve them and help them? And then you take in the view from the bottom up in which you recognize this is what God really values. This is, if we made it like a job description, His definition of success for me. Like, this is what he wants to herald. This is true greatness in his eyes. We look at it to be inspired, to be motivated. And I understand, friends, that it is paradoxical. It it is indeed a battle that you will always face. It's like that bucket trying to be submerged under the water. Maybe the only way then to keep it under is just to turn it right side up. Let the water in. Stop fighting for the preservation of self that puts so much pressure on you in the first place and just say, you know what? I'm going to empty myself of self. I'm going to pursue Christ and all his glory and goodness and as antithetical and as opposite and as contrary as it may seem. Let us learn by paradox 
that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, and that the valley is the place of vision. Let's pray. Father, I ask for nothing more this day than that you would give us, your people, the mindset of Christ. That we would habitually, regularly, as we gather as a church, check self-interest, check self-promotion, that we would pursue the good and the honor of others, that we would humble ourselves, that we would lower ourselves, that Sure, we do the public things as needed, but that we would do the private things, the things that no one else sees, the things that are inconvenient, the things that are hard, the things that are difficult. And may we see this, or not as a loss, but as a win. For this is what you celebrate. This is what you honor. You honored it in your son. And as you said in the Gospels, that you would honor this in us. We long to represent you well. We long to live up to the standard of greatness that you have set for us. So impress us again, or with the work that was accomplished on the cross and the resurrection and Christ's ascension. Lord, amaze us once more with your love. And so massage into this congregation or this mindset, the mindset of Christ. And it's in his name we pray and ask these things. Amen.